At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, I'm Brian Sullivan, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange, the risk in the regionals. Former Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan says you need to ask the banks three questions. He'll lay them out. MAG7, eh, get to know the AI9, who they are, and if they belong in your portfolio. And is it a sports stream dream team? Or just too many players on the field. We're going to have the latest on that surprise alliance between Warner Brothers, Fox, and ESPN. All that goodness ahead across the hour. We begin with today's markets. Dom Chu and the numbers. Dom, take it away. Strong ones, Brian Sullivan and Green across the board here. We are going to put a gold star up right off the bat for the S&P 500 because we are at record highs so far on an intraday basis. And just to give you an idea, it's currently at 49.88. At the highs of the session, that level was 49.95. So literally just five points away from S&P 5,000. Not sure how many people had that in their bingo card, but that's where we're at right now. The Dow Industrial's up about one-third of 1%, 38,670 the last trade. And the NASDAQ composite, uh, in line with the rest of the market overall, 15,716, up 107 points. And, of course, that big tech trade is really helping to power things so far today. If you take a look at the overall picture for where else in the market we're keeping a close eye on, check out what's happening with regard to the real outperformance of those mega cap technology type stocks, mega cap stocks overall versus the smaller cap Russell 2000. On a year-to-date basis, the S&P 500 up a very respectable 4.5%. Meanwhile, the mid-cap stocks, that kind of middle soft spot ground, they're just down about one-half of 1%. Nothing crazy. But look at the underperformance in the small-cap ticker IWN, the Russell 2000 ETF, which is down 3.5%. That big swing and that big gap in performance is something a lot of traders are keeping a close eye on right now. And then, if you're looking for that regional bank trade that Brian laid out before, New York Community Bank Corp. It continues to decline. It's off some of the worst levels of the session right now. Four bucks a share, down four and a half percent. Those concerns continue about some of the weakness that we're seeing there with regard to that particular business. Valley National, Webster Financial, Bank United, some of the other regional smaller to mid-sized banks that are also caught up in some of the negative sentiment. So keep an eye on those regionals, Bank. I know you guys are going to be talking, uh, Brian, quite a bit more about this. I'll send things back over to you. Yes, we will. In fact, right now, Mr. Dominic Chu, thank you very much. All right. So as Dom said, I mean, New York Community Bank, a big story. Shares have been hammered on concern about commercial real estate as well. And despite the name, New York Community Bank Corp is not a small regional bank. Okay, if you're not familiar with them, I get it. You live on the West Coast, Midwest, whatever. NYCB has 420 branches, more than 115 billion in assets. They're America's seventh largest mortgage originator. It is a big bank. Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari addressed some of the problems and fears of risk earlier on Squawk Box. We think it's going to be on a bank-by-bank basis where we see pressures flare up, and our bank supervisors are in very close contact with other supervisors around the country and, of course, with bank management to monitor their portfolio. So it's something we're watching very carefully, but I do think most of commercial real estate is doing well. Uh, It really is just the office segment. 
Well, it's not a systemic issue, at least not yet. Your first guest says there are three key questions that supervisors have to ask community banks. Joining us now is Robert Kaplan, former president of the Dallas Federal Reserve and currently co-chair of the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation. Uh, Robert, good to see you again on CNBC. Thank you. Um, I hope I made the point. New York Community Bank is not some small local bank with a couple of branches. This is a gigantic bank. Yes, it's the 35th largest bank in the United States. And just for context, there's 4,150 4, banks in the United wow. States. The top, great, top 2%. The great, yeah, there's, there's only 35 or 40 banks in the U.S. with assets over $100 billion. And to, work, to your lead-in, uh, over the last year and a half, you always ask, is there an asset liability mismatch? I think most banks have cleaned that up to the extent they had that exposure, meaning they had a lot of excess deposits and they bought long-term treasuries and other assets. That's one issue. Regulators and boards are also looking heavily at percentage of uninsured deposits because that makes you vulnerable to deposit flight if there's stress. And then the third big issue, which was the surprise here, is the size and the quality of the loan book. I was actually surprised, given how big this bank is, every bank board meeting I'm in, there's an obsession with making sure they're properly provisioned for commercial real estate, particularly office. And so I think that's why the market was so surprised that they announced a surprise increase in loss reserve because this has been a long-running focus and it sounds like this bank came to it a little bit late. Do you think the market's overreacting here? The market's doing what it always does when there's a surprise. It's now scrubbing every other bank for its commercial uh, loan exposure, commercial real estate exposure, and trying to figure out whether uh, whether they're properly reserved. Normally, when the market has to react, rather than the supervisors and regulators being out ahead, the market almost always overreacts, uh, as it did last spring. And things will settle back down, but the, but the market is hunting for any other banks that might be under-reserved. My guess is, because this has been such a focus, uh, I would hope that between the regulators and bank managements, this, uh, this situation will turn out to be unusual, but we don't know. And what the market does when in doubt, it shoots first by selling and asking questions later. So I would hope that this will settle out over the next several weeks. This bank, though, yeah. unfortunately has $110 billion in assets, and it's got a market cap now of $3 billion, meaning on the market basis, it's dramatically undercapitalized. And this is where uh, management and regulators are going to have to figure out how to deal well, with well, this. Well, we got to get to Rick in a second, but I want to ask you this, Robert. What happened? Okay, we, we can agree the San Francisco Fed was asleep at the switch with, with Silvergate, Silicon Valley. Maybe you won't agree with that. I said it. You don't have to. Uh, I thought we were, I mean, that was almost a year ago that we had that sort of regional bank crisis. How did this go unnoticed? Yeah, yeah. so normally... Uh, when there's a problem at a bank, it's normally not because they own too much in the way of treasury or treasury related. That's what happened last spring. They own so much of it. And when rates went up, they just lost a lot of money. This is an old fashioned credit loss. Um, and, and yes, I think most banks are all over commercial real estate. It's been well advertised that there are problems in commercial real estate. So I, I, 
I, I'm surprised that managements were slow on this at this bank and that the regulators, I'm sure, are kicking themselves that they didn't scrub this loan book better to, create, to prevent this kind of surprise. But again, I hope it's not very widespread. Yeah. All right. Hey, uh, Robert, if I could ask you to sit there, we got a huge, huge auction of 10-year notes. I, wanna, I want you to sit there. We'll come back to you. I want to go to Rick Santelli right now because, Rick, uh, this is, I believe, the biggest single auction of 10-year notes ever or close to it. Ever, 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 ever. We've had one, two, three, four other auctions that were close at $41 billion between the end of 2020 and the beginning, uh, mid-year of 2021. But $42 billion, which is the size of today's auction, the biggest ever. And it went spectacularly well. I give it an A- minus in terms of investors stepped up to buy the debt of the U.S. Treasury, and they did it very aggressively. As you look at an intraday or two-day chart of 10s, you'll see that yields dropped right at 1 Eastern, 12 Central, when the auction buttoned up. You should also notice we briefly did a little work under yesterday's low yields, so there was a bit of a bias for rates to move down and prices to move up. Uh, Whether it moves much further below 410 is questionable, Brian. That's a good pivot that traders are using, but it's a good auction. Quickly, quickly, if you look at the bid to cover 2.56 best since February of last year, uh, the indirect 71% best since August of last year. If you look at direct bidders, uh, it's the only category that was under the 10 auction average. It was the weakest since just November, and there's the A minus, the grade, that's the minus. Only 13% taken by Primary dealers, what does that mean? That means the buffet table with all these 10-year treasuries on it, investors pretty much cleaned it up. And what was left, that goes to the primary dealers, the toll keepers of our debt, well, they only took down 13%, the smallest percentage since August of 23. Tomorrow we finish $121 billion of supply, Brian, with 30-year bonds. And my guess is that you want to pay close attention because these long-dated treasury auctions, if they go well, you can really see the fact that currently the high yield for 2024 is 418. We're backing away from that as demand from the auction rose large. Back to you. A minus. We'll take it. Not bad. Rick Santelli, thank you. Let's go back to Robert Kaplan, who I could see sort of nodding his head. Robert, we got a lot of debt. There's debts, student loan debts, credit card debts, mortgage debts. But guess what? So do all the other countries. China's a rolling disaster. Is the United States. I mean, with everything else going on, we're, I think we're the best house in the neighborhood. We are. Uh, the issue is we've got nine trillion of treasuries to sell this year. Uh, That's a lot. I'm, I'm very happy that this 42 billion auction went well, and I think it's a good sign. I think the issue for the treasury is uh, with this amount of debt to sell, and by the way, it's only heading north in the future. Uh, is th- there's people want to be in the dollar versus other countries? We are the best house in the neighborhood. The issue is, do they want to go out 10 and 30 years? And so I think this 10-year auction day was a good test. But my worry for the years ahead, with Treasury supply going up and up and up, banks are not buying Treasuries like they were, as we just talked about. The Fed is running off its balance sheet. Foreigners are not buying like they were. I think that's where the Treasury is navigating this very carefully just to see how much appetite is out there mm-hmm. for duration. The reason this is a big deal, a lot's been focused on the Fed and wh- when will they cut, and how much will they cut. 
But the economy is is surprisingly resilient last year and this year. And I think the biggest reason why is we're running historic deficits. We are spending seven half eight percent of GDP on deficit spending. Inflation Reduction Act, Infrastructure Act, and yeah. uh, interest expenses heading toward a trillion dollars, not this year, but next year. And so that's why there's going to be a lot more focus in the months and years ahead on these treasury auctions, because we're now at over 100 percent debt to GDP. And we're uh, we're testing yeah. our ability to think this deficit. And by the way, of that of that eight trillion, only about four is covid related. The other four trillion is just deficit spending. Five million jobs, four trillion dollars. Do the math. Robert Kaplan, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. Talk to I want to draw your attention to some Bill Ackman news. Pershing Square is launching a new fund aimed at U.S. retail investors. A regulatory filing shows the firm is launching Pershing Square USA, a closed end fund that will be listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker PSUS. There'll be no minimum investment and it will be available to investors whose net worth typically does not allow them to invest in hedge funds. The fund, though, will charge a 2% fee every year after the first year Bill, you know we're going to call you and ask you to come on last call tonight. All right, let's switch gears to sports and maybe the shot heard round the media world. Disney's ESPN, along with Fox and Warner Brothers, are teaming up to launch a joint sports streaming platform later on this year. It's not helping the stocks today, but regardless, the idea is that this new streamer will run with their cable networks and with ESPN+. Now, each company will own a third of the service, but the revenue share will probably vary depending on the size of the investment. It is set to launch later on this fall. Let's talk more about it. It's a big deal. Bring in senior media and tech correspondent Julia Borston, along with CNBC.com media reporter Alex Sherman. And Julia, um, I know you got a big interview coming up later on today with, with Bob Iger. You've had some time to dig in. How big of a deal might this be? I think this might be a very big deal. It certainly speaks to the pressure that all these media companies are under. But I have to say, you you have the promo up there for Bob Iger. So, yes, I'm going to be talking about this with Disney CEO Bob Iger in our exclusive interview at 4 p.m. Eastern. But this speaks to the pressure that these media companies are under in the midst of cord cutting to really monetize the fandom of, of people who want to watch sports and want to make sure that they're not losing that subscription revenue. Now, the key thing here is the price point. We don't know what it's going to cost. We can expect somewhere in the 40 to $50 range. And that might really determine whether this drives cord cutting for people who are already, uh, uh, who are currently paying for a pay TV bundle, or whether it appeals more to cord nevers um, or, or people who are sort of digital first consumers. So I think that's going to be a key thing to watch here is the price point. And then, of course, for them to get this ready to go by the fall, given that there are these three media giants that are partnering on this, is, is a big undertaking for sure. Sure. Yeah, Alex Sherman, what do you think? There's two ways this could go. Uh, I spoke with one person who was involved. Good or bad. Good, <laughs> one good, one bad, depending on your perspective. Um, I spoke with a person who was involved with the launch of this product. He said this is going to be a monster, that it's going to be a catalyst that sort of destroys the cable bundle as we know it, and it will generate a lot of interest. It will be, you know, about half the price or, or in that ballpark of, I think YouTube TV charges like $73 a month now. So if this thing is, you know, 40 or $45 a month, significantly cheaper, will draw a big audience that way, will appeal, as Julia said, to some people who have got, gotten rid of cable, but maybe will come back to the fold now that they can get ESPN 
for a lesser price. Or the other side of this is that the reason that all of these people have cut cable over the past 10 years is that they don't need sports. They've learned to live without it. So how many people is this really appealing to? Well, it's appealing to some people that may cancel cable to get this thing, but it is not a, a full sports offering. It doesn't include NBC Universal content, and it doesn't include Paramount Global content. That's CBS and NBC. It's a lot of a golf. lot of sports. Yeah, a lot of golf, so, car racing. Correct. And so you, like that. you could bundle this with Peacock and Paramount Plus, but the more add-ons you have, the more expensive you're going to get. And Why don't we just bundle everything together, Julia, and call it cable? It'll work. It'll be fast. It'll be a crystal clear picture. You won't have to buffer. You don't have to worry about plugging something into a USB port in the back of your TV. Right? What's wrong with the yeah, cable? Brian, Ye old cable yeah. bundle. Rip. What's old is new again, right? This is the, the rebundling. And by the way, this is something that David Zaslav, who's Warner Brothers Discovery, is part of this, has talked about a lot. The potential, if not for mergers, for rebundling of assets. Another factor that I think is important to, to consider here, something that Morgan Stanley uh, mentions in its note today, is that this might complicate the relationship that the media giants have with the pay TV distributors, that what they call the MVPDs. Um, we saw a clash early, uh, late last year between Charter and Disney, um, and we could see this further pushing um, the likes of Charter um, or even our, our own parent company, Comcast, to want to have more flexibility in terms of what types of ch uh, channels they're licensing or also whether they have the ability to create their own types of bundles. So that might put pressure on those relationships as well. We're in the cable news business, Brian. So what? let's talk about what cable news executives are thinking about okay. and discussing today. This is now a sports bundle. Well, the, the cable bundle has more or less been kept alive by live sports and live news, which have been in large part inaccessible in a streaming world. Or if they are accessible, you have to pay quite a bit for them. Now we have a skinny sports bundle. Is the next step perhaps a skinny news bundle? Will we see something where Fox News comes together with MSNBC and and, and, and CNN, and they offer something where that it's would like, be, look, that would sports be consumers, would be news consumers. Or, Julia's laughing. That would be, you know, Fox alongside MSNBC. Oh. Or maybe we could even get broader and say some of the print news organizations bundle with the broadcast news organizations for a new Well, they're going to have to do something. Bundle. And I will just say that well, the, the market, oh, get, get your comment a second, Julia. The market is saying it doesn't like it. Fox Corp down 6% today. Warner Brothers Discovery down 35 By the way, Charter and Comcast, our parent company, they're down as well, Julia. Well, that's because we don't have all the details yet. We know mm. that they're working in this joint venture, but I think the key issue here is going to be the cost and what that does in terms of more cord cutting. Um, I think I would just have to point out here that what's really interesting is you're going to have all of the sports networks, but they're also going to be two just regular networks included in this bundle. That's ABC and that's Fox. Also, you get TBS. So if you turn on ABC or Fox or TBS in the middle of the day, you might see a rerun of a sitcom or you might might see news. And so what you're getting here is more than just sports. You're also getting some news bundled into that. Um, so I think you might sort of check the box for people who want live news and then are also going to get some general entertainment as well. So I think it is meaningful that you're getting the regular linear feed of some of these mainstream networks that are not just 100 percent focused on sports. Big story. And like you said, Julia, there's still a lot we need to learn. Market doesn't like it yet. We'll see. Alex, Julia, thank you both very much. Appreciate it. All right, by the way, don't miss a first on CNBC interview with Paramount CEO Bob Backish. That is Friday around 10 a.m. Eastern on Squawk on the Street. But first, we're going to hear from NBC's Mike Tirico next hour on Power Lunch. Mike joining CNBC. I love it. 2.30 p.m. 
Eastern. All right, we're not done on this show. Don't, don't turn the dial or whatever they call it now. Coming up, forget the Magnificent Seven or the Super Six or the Fab Five or whatever you want to call it. Your next guest is here to make the case for the AI9. We're going to lay out some of the names, who they are, and why you might want to invest. Plus, the CEO of Liberty Energy is here with reaction to the White House hit on American LNG. And if he thinks the American oil production numbers are actually as good as they say they are. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. It is time for Tech Check. And today, let's check on Alibaba, the massive China-based company lower after whiffing on its sales numbers. But the bigger question people are asking is, despite the losses, are most China stocks simply uninvestable now? Here's Jabosa digging into that thesis for today's Tech Check. D. Brian, that really is the question that has been plaguing not just Alibaba, but the Chinese markets as a whole for years now. And I want to go back to 2020 because really there was this inflection point for both Alibaba and Chinese stocks. So we're going to show you Alibaba and the Hang Seng since December of 2020. That is when the Chinese government launched an antitrust investigation into Alibaba and its affiliate Ant financial now known as Ant Group and started this years long decline. It was kind of this wild card that told investors that Beijing could and would crack down on some of its biggest companies, no matter how successful they were. And so Alibaba now is kind of seen as a proxy for Chinese stocks that are largely seen as uninvestable. The company has tried to do everything to win back investor confidence. It put Jack Ma in out of the spotlight. Um, it has restructured the entire company. It tried to spin off its cloud division and list it. That didn't work. Even yesterday, Brian, announcing a $25 billion buyback. That is positive for investors, yet the stock is down today. And that really just glosses over the fundamental problems, one of them being that the field has completely changed in China for an Alibaba and some of the other tech giants allowing sort of a new class of tech giants to rise, like a Pinduoduo, like a Xi'an, even a Huawei, which has been around a long time, but gets help from the government. And so that's key here for investors. Is Alibaba any of these stocks investable? What is it going to take for the government to look at another company and say, you know what, you've grown too big. We're going to crack down. We're going to launch an investigation into you. And that's the fear for a lot of them. And Jack Ma just like went missing for a number of months. Uh, kind of amazing. Dear Drabosa, tech check, Alibaba. Well, it started with him. What's that? It really started with him. He It started with yeah. Jack Ma. I think that was in 2020. He made those comments. He pissed off the regulators. And then he suffered first Ant Group and then Alibaba. 
Yeah, vanished for a while. He's come back a little bit. You see him once in a while, but uh, not the place where you want to, uh, to your point, tick off the regulators, China. Deirdre Bosa, thank you. exactly. All right. Staying with tech, AI has been a key catalyst for big gains in some of the big names you see right here. Do you know that? But your next guest says the group of beneficiaries is about to get larger than just those names. He calls them the AI9, and he's here with why they deserve that title and maybe a spot in your portfolio. For more, we're joined by Brooke Day, portfolio manager at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Brooke, good to have you on. I'm looking at the names of the nine. You got three chips, three clouds, three data. Some of them make sense to me. The one that's, please, it's expound on Accenture as an AI play. Sure. So, you know, as we think about the opportunity for investing in AI, first off, we're very early in this process. And we're just at the point where you're beginning to see enterprises really engage in how they're going to use AI and Gen AI specifically across their businesses. As part of that process, and as you think about the, the kind of the value chain of investing in AI, the first has been this big infrastructure wave. And that's largely what we saw last year with companies like NVIDIA and a lot of the chip sector doing very well. The next has obviously been the big cloud guys who are going to run all these workloads. But we think the next leg of this story is really going to be focused on the data layer. And there's a couple different companies that we think are really very well exposed to that. But Accenture is a prime example of this. For enterprises to tune and train AI models on their own proprietary data, the first thing they need to do is get that data estate in a, in a form and a shape where um, they can tap into it and they can uh, you know, train these models on it. Accenture talks about how less than 10% of their enterprise customers have a modern data architecture across their systems. Mm. And their consulting teams are you know, a big driver of getting that data in the right format so that you can use these models. I've so heard yeah, of- we do think that it's a hidden you know, kind of AI play as we move out across the next year. Right, well, stock's up today. I've, I've heard of Zscaler, but I'm not going to offend our audience by saying I know anything about them. ZS, <laughs> kind of vague idea what they do. How do they fit into this? So the other part of data is data security and thinking about, you know, making sure that the data that you have can't leak out of your enterprise and can't go inform these public models and, uh, and, you know, leak into your competitive universe. So Zscaler is one of the leaders in next generation cybersecurity. Um, you know, they have a great zero trust architecture, uh, modern platforms. And, you know, again, as companies think about how do they take advantage of these super powerful tools, data governance, data protection, data securities are big parts of that. So we do think this is going to benefit the cybersecurity world as well. And then, you know, the second leg to the whole stool on cybersecurity is just that the threat environment is radically changing as we sit here today. And, and the, you know, the, the risks that you as an enterprise run from bad actors, you know, is just going up exponentially. So yeah. all that sets a really nice backdrop for cybersecurity. And obviously the chips have been benefiting. Everybody knows NVIDIA, everybody knows AMD. Let's talk about Marvel, not Marvel, not the superhero, you know, comic book <laughs> Disney thing. This is Marvel, a chip yeah. company. Again, one of these names where I've been talking about them for 20 years, still probably could not tell you what they do. Yeah. So first of all, we do think Marvel is a superhero. Uh, it's a fantastic. I knew your guy. It was a good one. It was yeah. nice. It was, yeah, I like you know, that. You set me up for that one. So I'll take credit there. But um, look, you know, so where Marvel plays in the AI universe is kind of twofold. First, their optics portfolio sits on top of every. Uh, uh, AI server out there, and it's the connection that lets the data flow server to server. And you know their their tie to NVIDIA GPUs is very high in terms of sort of a one to one ratio. So they're going to see a real benefit across time in their optics portfolio as these AI servers get rolled out into the data centers. That's what we think happens largely in 2024. The other really exciting part of Marvel, though, is the ASIC business that they run, where they're working with some of the largest cloud scale players to develop custom chips to run AI workloads. You know, we do think that that's going to be a big driver and is going to create an opportunity for them to gain real share on the server side uh, with, the, in, with their chips. 
Marvell, Accenture, ZCLR, Snowflake, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, AMD, and MU, and a partridge in a pear tree. Brooke Dane, thank you. Fascinating stuff. Appreciate it. Ryan, thanks for having me on today. All right, always. Thank you. All right, coming up, a CNBC investigation looks into whether investor-owned utility companies are properly assessing the risks that wildfires pose to their operations. Been working on this for a couple of months, and you'll see it next. Now is the time to bring new ideas to your industry. And T-Mobile for Business has the advanced 5G solutions to make that happen. We're helping rethink patient-doctor interactions with real-time data sharing. We're tracking carbon with 5G sensors to help fight climate change. We're partnering with cities to connect roadways, cars, and drivers to minimize injuries. Disruptive thinking deserves a disruptive partner. So let's get started on what's next for your business. Step up your innovation at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm, your, I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News Update. Senior White House officials will travel to Michigan on Thursday to meet with Muslim and Arab American community leaders. Officials will meet to hear the community's top issues and concerns, notably the Israel-Hamas war and civilian casualties in Gaza. This comes as President Biden has been under pressure to respond more aggressively to the ri- rising civilian deaths in the region. Former President Donald Trump will claim presidential immunity in his classified documents case despite a defeat on that issue in his appeal in D.C. Trump attorneys notified the court in the Florida classified documents case the same day the D.C. appeals court denied the immunity claim for the election subversion case. The Florida case is currently set to go to trial in May, but disputes over discovery could push that date back. And a Frenchman who spent eight years building a replica of the Eiffel Tower with matchsticks might lose the title of world's tallest matchstick sculpture. I've been coveting that for a long time, personally, uh, because the wrong type of matchstick was used here. The Guinness Book of World Records said that he used a type of matchstick that was not commercially available. Specifically, it was matchsticks stripped of the uh, tip there. But there's still hope. Guinness is reviewing the decision. Brian, back to you. That would be a sick burn. A sick burn. If yeah. they, if they really? removed the match. Yeah. yeah. Light it on fire. Hey, Tyler. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, on deck. Is the government overstating actual American oil output? Mm-hmm. We're going to ask a big player. Just that. Next. All right, welcome back. The oil prices have been on hold for a few months. Don't think there aren't some fascinating storylines in energy, oil, and gas right now. You've got a near all-out war in the Red Sea. You've got some questions about what the real American oil output is. And, of course, President Biden and Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, quote, pausing LNG export reviews on future projects. The Energy Secretary writing that the pause will not impact current jobs or projects. But your next guest and pretty much everyone we've spoken with at Energy, which is a lot, would likely disagree with that statement. Joining us now is Chris Wright. He is the CEO of Liberty Energy, obviously coming at it from the oil and gas side. So we'll, we understand that. But if correct me if I'm wrong. OK, the, the energy secretary is correct in that the projects that are currently being built or that have been fully permitted are going to go forward. But 
If you're thinking about building something in the future and you're trying to raise money right now, you could be in big trouble. Absolutely, Brian. Uncertainty chills investment. And it's not just here in the U.S. Think of the customers, the consumers of this natural gas. You know, they're in Asia or they're in Europe and they're going to expand their power grid. They need more firm power supply. They build a coal plant or they build a natural gas plant. Those are the two dominant sources of, of, of uh, firm electricity these days. This might chill investment. This might, people might, if they're on the bubble, they might tilt more to coal because they're not as sure how much new supply will come from the U.S. It just, it just under, it, uh, it undermines confidence for the fastest growing energy source on the planet by far is natural yeah, gas. And I, and I want to be clear because I've talked to people inside the administration about this as well. Given the projects that are currently underway, we will still double U.S. LNG exports over the next four years, okay? Because I know Europe and Japan and Korea kind of freaked out when this happened. But if you're Venture Global with this massive new expansion, if you're a company called Commonwealth in Houston, or if you're a company thinking about building it, this is a major blow to you, probably to Europe and Asia, and probably to jobs. Absolutely. And and Brian, today, only about a little less than 20% of all natural gas is transported as LNG today. But most of the growth in natural gas consumption around the world is going to be transported versus via LNG. So, yeah, I mean, this this is the direction the world is moving. And if you think of the climate movement, this is what they want, right? We want to displace coal with natural gas. If you want to lower not just pollutants, but greenhouse gases. And this this is going to this this is going to slow that a bit. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting, especially because Germany just announced they're going to build four giant new natural gas plants because they they shut off nuclear and they had to go to coal, which doesn't seem green. Chris, I'm going to ask you a bit of a semi controversial question, but it's coming from UBS. OK, it's not some tinfoil hat thing. UBS today put out a note questioning whether or not the record U.S. oil output numbers are indeed correct, not because somebody's lying, but because the definition of oil production may have changed because they're changing the nature of the liquids. Do you believe that the U.S. is truly at a record high U.S. oil production? Oh, I think the U.S. is clearly at a record high oil production. Um, the, The exact numbers, we don't know those exact numbers, you know, in real time. There's always a delay to get firm data on it. But look, the the global definition of oil, we always call it oil, but it's really liquid fuels. So it's not all black oil. It does include natural gas liquids. And when you add in all of the things that are counted in global oil supplies, U.S. production is actually well over 20 million barrels a day. We're over 20 percent of total global liquid fuel production, which is mostly oil, but not just oil. Yeah, mostly oil, but not just oil. But we do believe we are at a record, which is uh, which is terrific news. Where do you see it headed? We're going to get the 14 million, Chris. Not this year, not this year. You know, the rate of investment has slowed down, slowed down a bit. So I think we'll see more moderate growth. But we probably end this year high 13s, 136, 137, 138. So, yeah, the U.S. will continue to be the world's energy powerhouse. Hopefully that's not good just for our country, but good for the world. But you got to be able to move those products, yeah. oil and natural gas. Chris Wright, Liberty Energy. Always appreciate your views, Chris. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Take care. All right, on deck. The risk of wildfires from electric utilities and climate-related risks, whether utilities are doing enough to mitigate the risk of fires and lives. The findings of a CNBC investigation. Next. 
All right, now to a CNBC investigation. It has been nearly six months since the devastating wildfire in Hawaii that killed over 100 people. That fire, along with PG&E's massive fire in 2018 in California, are raising more fears that utility companies are not properly assessing the risks that wildfires pose to their operations, and also that investors in these companies may be doing the same. Hawaiian Electric, which is Hawaii's investor-owned utility, is facing allegations that its infrastructure caused the wildfires that burned Lahaina, Maui. Company stock has collapsed as a result of that. Bankruptcy, some say, could be a real risk. And Hawaiian Electric is not alone. Experts say these wildfire risks have not been priced into many utility company stocks. Here is our report. Michelle Glogovac remembers November 8th, 2018. It completely went up in flames. It was the day her childhood home and much of Paradise, California, were destroyed in a wildfire caused by utility giant PG&E's infrastructure. For it to have moved so quickly, so fast, it, it was unheard of. She was just running and terrified. For Brent Jones, that day was August 8th, 2023, the day his aunt, Lori Allen, ran through a burning field to try to escape the deadly Lahaina wildfire. Hawaii officials are fearing the worst as the sun comes up in Maui. Your Aunt Lori was the 98th person to pass away from the Lahaina fire. I would imagine that her 53 days in the hospital with 70% of her body burned were pretty difficult. There were a lot of days that were just really very difficult. She was in extreme amounts of pain. The cause of Hawaii's wildfire is yet to be determined, but a lawsuit filed by Maui County alleges that Hawaiian Electric inexcusably kept their power lines energized during the forecasted high fire danger conditions. A separate investor lawsuit alleges the company made misleading statements about its wildfire prevention and safety protocols, calling them inadequate. Hawaiian Electric is not alone. A CNBC investigation finds some utility companies are not properly assessing the risks climate change poses to their operations. I think there's a failure to fully understand the risk. Michael Wara, director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at Stanford University, studies wildfire mitigation plans. He says Hawaiian Electric lacked basic risk mitigation efforts, like a power shutoff plan, which is when a utility intentionally cuts off electricity when certain conditions, like strong winds, occur prevent power lines sparking a fire. Hawaiian Electric has publicly stated it did not turn off power when high winds occurred, which caused its power lines to fall and start a morning fire on August 8th. It said this fire was contained and that a second afternoon fire later that same day, the cause of which is still unknown, is what devastated Lahaina. Are you investors properly discounting the utility stocks risk? Not right now. We don't see that kind of discounting happen, except in cases where the utility has already caused a fire. Hawaiian Electric, which trades as HE on the New York Stock Exchange, saw its shares crash after the fire. PG&E's stock price also plummeted after a 2017 fire and dropped again after the one in 2018 that destroyed Glogovac's childhood home. These fires resulted in the company filing for bankruptcy in 2019 settling a $13.5 billion lawsuit alleging its infrastructure was to blame. Hawaiian Electric declined an on-camera interview with CNBC, but in a statement, a spokesperson said Hawaiian Electric's power lines had been de-energized for more than six hours when the afternoon fire that spread to Lahaina broke out. The company also has been executing on a wildfire mitigation and grid resilience program for years and was evaluating wildfire defense strategies, including whether to implement a public safety power shutoff program as a tool of last resort. 
We've reduced our wildfire risk. Despite coming on CNBC last quarter, PG&E also declined an interview for this story, but in a statement wrote that since 2017, PG&E has reduced wildfire risk from its equipment by 94% through measures like burying power lines, vegetation management, and implementing its public safety power shutoff program to de-energize power lines. Your utility is taking some of that money and using it to fund their political machine. David Pomerantz is the executive director of the Energy and Policy Institute, a watchdog for utility companies, which is funded by philanthropic foundations that support climate actions, environmental conservation, and environmental justice. He says the failure to assess and mitigate risk boils down to one thing, money. Like all investor-owned companies, it's all about the bottom line. Utilities are trying to boost earnings. Pomerant says utility companies make money through capital expenditures, which involve building new infrastructure like putting power lines underground. The cost of this, plus an additional percentage of profit determined by regulators, all get baked into customers' bills over time. On the other hand, operational expenses, things like trimming trees or clearing grass near power lines, don't make money for the companies and their shareholders. Pomerant says this is why utilities might be less motivated to spend on expenses, because the more they spend on operational costs, the more their profits shrink. Now, Glogovac's parents in Paradise, California, were fortunate. They had fire insurance on their home, and they were able to rebuild. But many victims are still waiting on payouts from a trust created to compensate PG&E fire victims, and it gets worse. Right now, under federal law, any money that has been paid out can be taxed meaning that some victims could end up with far less money to rebuild than they expected or even get a surprise tax bill. But there is some hope. A proposed law that would make this money tax exempt. The bill has passed the House as part of the broader tax package and is currently awaiting a vote in the Senate before it can get signed into law. We are following that and we'll bring you more as it moves through D.C. By the way, it's not all of our package. For a deeper dive and more, you can find our full investigation and a longer form piece on CNBC.com. All right, coming up, streaming, Super Bowl, and, of course, T-Swift. The hottest Gen Z trends of the company's poised to profit next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The reportedly coming streaming offering from ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers could be the final blow to the cable bundle. But what about to those who've already cut the cord or never had it at all? Many younger viewers simply don't see value in cable or can't afford it or both. So will they pay for this? Let's talk about that and other trends around the Super Bowl with Gen Z. Casey Lewis is the founder of Trend Newsletter After School. Casey, good to have you on. Uh, first off, I, I, we're going to talk about, you know, the brands and stuff, but I want to get your take. Like, are you going to drop 50 bucks for a sports-only streaming bundle? So I saw one reporter say that this could change TV forever. And while I do think it might be what it takes to get those cord cutter holdouts to come over, you know, the Xers and boomers, I do not think this will be terribly impactful for young people. Because like many of us have streamer fatigue as it is, inflation, economic strains, making us have even fewer streamers. It's 50 bucks plus. It's, it's a lot. And I think the thing is, this won't fix the larger issue of Gen Z tuning into live TV. So they're working. They're up against a lot here. It is. And we know what's happened with live TV. I mean, do you have a team, Casey? I don't know where you live or anything about you. Like, is there like a team you're super passionate <laughs> about? Like the Buffalo Sabres? The Chiefs. The Chiefs. I live in New York, but I'm uh, my name is Casey because I was born in Kansas City. 
folks. So you would be the perfect. I mean, you, you're, by the way, I don't know if you heard, but your team is playing on Sunday, and there's this singer who's going to be there. Along, there's a football game, but who cares about that? There's a very famous pop star you may have heard about who will be in the stands apparently. I have heard. I have heard all of these things. How, does that? How do you think that might change? brand perception. Listen, you can actually bet on how many times she will be shown by cameras. It's probably like 35. Who knows? I got to imagine advertisers are loving this. Yeah, I mean, I understand the diehard sports fans roll their eyes every time Taylor comes on TV. I get it. But I, it's really significant from an economic impact. I mean, these Gen Z young women fans are tuning into football in numbers that they literally never have in history. Like that, can we, that's crazy. And they're also, they're buying merch, they're throwing watch parties, they're posting about it all over social media. Yeah. This is huge for the NFL. And again, I know the old school fans are sort of like, we don't need those people, but this is a huge win for live sports. It is. And by the way, some of the brand advertisers that are going, I don't know all of them, obviously, but we know a lot. And there's a lot. My wife actually works in consumer products and skincare, So this is keen of interest around my dinner table uh, if, if I had dinner. <laughs> Uh, and there's ELF, <laughs> NYX, V, and some others that are going to be, they just got lucky with this. But like ELF, right, Eyes, Lips, Face, they faced a lot of like mockery from your generation because it was like Mean Girls 2 was just basically an ELF commercial with a movie wrapped around it. Yeah, they, it's actually, I, I don't mean to correct you here, but it's actually Elf. <laughs> Elf and Nyx. I would not expect you to know that. But no, Elf really needs a win here. And last year they had a really great, a great Super Bowl ad with Jennifer Coolidge. This year it's looking like it's going to be hit or miss. So they have the Suits cast, which is a win because Gen Z, it's the Suits show is the number one most streamed show. This is a show that Meghan Markle famously was on years ago. Gen Z are fans of the show. So this, they're reuniting on the Elf commercial. Okay, so, so far, so good. But they're also having Judge Judy, Meghan Trainer. Like, it might be crazy. I don't know if they'll be into it, but we'll, we'll all see together, I guess, on Sunday night. Yeah, I guess we all will. But it was, by the way, Eyes Up's face. But I think maybe they just, yes. cha- I think maybe they just change it to Elf, like the movie, because Will Ferrell, I don't, it's all... It's all good. I, I assume. So you got a prediction on the score, like Kansas City 72, San Francisco 3? Taylor Swift 100? I don't know. That's it? It's going to, we got to bet. I'm going to bet. I'm going to bet. I'm going to find out what the under over betting line is on Taylor Swift appearances because I think Casey, that's going to be fascinating. Uh, after school, a trend newsletter. Big Sunday coming up. Good luck to your. Uh, your Chiefs because nobody likes the 49ers. Casey Lewis, thank you very much. Appreciate it. <laughs> thank you so much. All right, thank you. thank you. All right, folks, that does it for The Exchange. You'll be free of me tomorrow, but I'll be back on Friday. Power Lunch. Tyler is back up next after this quick break. Stick around. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.